Amen. Good morning to you. Before we get started this morning, we'd like to uh, just take a personal moment. Uh, as Evan said a while ago, we have been praying for Emily for a couple weeks now, Erica's sister. And uh, just ask you to, to pray uh, fervently this morning, even uh, as we speak. There are, uh, they are giving her a lot of uh, careful attention um, there in Shreveport at Willis Knight in Piermont. And it is, um, uh, there is a good chance that she may not make it through this. And so uh, we are praying for, um, uh, for Emily Lambert, her husband James, uh, their three kids, of course, uh, Erica and our family, and uh, their mom, Marcia. And so we know that God is good, and we know that he is the great physician, and we know uh, that we trust in him. And so I uh, appreciate your prayers and covet you continue uh, praying for us, and uh, probably as soon as uh, we finish uh, preaching this morning, uh, we're going to just head on out of here and head to, to Shreveport. So if we can, let's pray together as we uh, transition to God's Word this morning. Lord, I would do thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy uh, in every aspect of our life. Uh, in the midst of sickness and suffering, Lord, and the, the, all the broken aspects of this world, um, we thank you that Christ overcomes ultimately. And so we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the hope that we have in him. Uh, Lord, not just for, uh, for our family, do I pray, Lord, this morning, but for, for all of these families and many that we've mentioned this morning who are, uh, who are seriously suffering and those in our community. And so we just pray that, um, that even through suffering, especially through suffering, that we would look to you and take our hope and our peace and our strength from you. I do pray this morning, Lord, for Emily, for a uh, divine miracle in her life, but I pray... Um, as Erica does, Lord, ultimately through your will to be done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, it is uh, an exciting day. Uh, it is the first, uh, my personal first Sunday back in about two and a half months. And so, yes, that does mean we're going to go for quite a minute this morning. And so I uh, hope you set your crop pots to low before you left. Um, it is good to be back uh, with you this morning. Of course, it's been good, even though I've not been in the pulpit. It's been great, especially to sit under the preached word uh, of our other elders uh, these past uh, couple months. And it's always good to be uh, in God's word with God's people. Uh, it's also been good to, uh, to, to witness Adam and uh, as God has begun his journey in the preaching ministry. And he's, uh, I believe he's preached three times now in the past few months and excited to see what that looks like uh, this upcoming year. And of course, it's going to be a good year, right? Uh, we're still saying Happy New Year, so uh, Happy New Year to all of you, and looking forward to what 2022 holds, and not to be cliche, despite what, uh, uh, what 2022 holds, we know who holds the new year. And so, uh, so today, uh, this week, this year, uh, until Christ returns, we continue to look to Him and hope and trust, as we'll even again talk about the sovereignty of the Lord in all things uh, this morning. And so very eager for this new year. And also it's exciting this morning because we get to start a new book. Uh, if my math is correct, which oftentimes it is, I believe this is book number 11 for North Hills. Someone is welcome to fact check me, uh, but we are starting book 11 uh, the last book we finished, um, somebody help me out, Jude, thank you. We finished the book of Jude uh, sometime last October and uh, took an uh, intentional break as we went through some Reformation stuff, went through uh, the prover some Proverbs, and then, of course, Advent. And so now this morning, uh, we are turning back to the Old Testament, uh, to the book of Daniel. 
And so every time we turn to a new book, the, the question that many have is why, right? Why Daniel? Why do we turn to Daniel? Why do we choose the book of Daniel? Of all the books that are left in the Bible to preach, if we preach through 10, that means there's 56 left. And so why Daniel? Uh, my question and response would be, why not Daniel, right? Um, choosing a book to preach through uh, as elders here at North Hills, uh, it is both a big deal and not such a big deal, just to be quite frank. Uh, it is a big deal because it is a book that we're going to commit through, the going through verse by verse, and it will take much of our time, and it'll be what we feed on on Sunday mornings for the foreseeable future. Uh, but it's also not such a big deal because we're eventually going to preach through all of them. And so it will, at the pace we're on, far outlast me and James and Ryan and probably even Evan and Justin and whatever elders are to come. Uh, Lord willing, if he continues the ministry here at North Hills, uh, we have a lot of work to do. And so, uh, so, but we are thankful the Lord has led us to this book of Daniel and thankful for what it holds uh, because it is a good book. Uh, it is a great book. It is the Word of God, and it is just as good of every book that we've worked through so far. And so, but our attention now will be on the book of Daniel. Uh, and believe it or not, we actually have a plan going through the book of Daniel. Uh, we have sketched out, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 32 sermons, give or take 20, okay? Uh, about 32 sermons that we're going to work through um, as we'll see in a moment, Daniel's in a couple of sections, and so we'll finish the first section uh, by the end of this semester and then spend the, the summer working through uh, the second part of Daniel. And it's also excited that it'll be the first book that on a very intentional note that all of our elders rotate in preaching through, uh, through this particular book. So a lot of good things happening, very excited about getting Daniel uh, started. And so uh, that's what we're doing this morning in Daniel chapter 1, the first couple of verses that we'll get to uh, here in just a moment. So the, the question is, what is Daniel all about? Now this morning, we're not going to go through as much historical context as we have uh, in the past. We're definitely going to spend some time on some of it. But what is Daniel all about? Uh, well, don't want to give it all away, so you've got to come every week for the next 32 weeks uh, to get the full message of Daniel. Uh, but we'll at least give you a little teaser this morning about this wonderful book uh, that is called Daniel. Uh, but first, let's address a couple of reasons that we're not going to Daniel, uh, even specifically maybe a few reasons that people often go to Daniel. Uh, I imagine if you've been in church any, uh, at any point of your life, if you spent any time in the church, uh, you will probably have spent time in the book of Daniel. You've been in some stories in Daniel. As we go through Jude, it's not as familiar, and Habakkuk, maybe not as familiar, but Daniel definitely contains some very familiar stories and some very familiar reasons to go. But some reasons that people often turn to Daniel, one, especially, what is today, January the 2nd, is that right? The Daniel fast, right? And so whenever you want to put a spiritual spin on your dieting journey, you can go to the Daniel fast. And not to crack on the Daniel fast, we've done it in our life, but we're not turning to Daniel on January 2nd because the Daniel fast. Um, and that is not where we're going, but some may turn there uh, for that purpose. Some like to focus on Daniel, and even there's taglines you may or may not have heard in the past, dare to be a Daniel, and it's an inspiring term, right? Because we know that Daniel uh, is in the lion's den, and you're probably familiar with that story uh, as a kid, and to dare to be a Daniel, 
We can even add to it to strive to be a Shadrach or emulate uh, Meshach or always be a, an Abednego. Don't do those things, okay? <laughs> because each one of those guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would all say the same thing. Don't be like me. Be like the Lord God Almighty. And so the heroes we'll see in Daniel are not these men. So we don't dare to be a Daniel, but we, we look to Christ ultimately, uh, the provision of the Lord God Almighty. And some would even say, well, some would turn to Daniel, and they would turn to chapter 7 through 12, and they would like to look at his visions. Uh, if, if you've ever been involved in youth ministry, uh, there is the number one topic for all middle school boys especially, and that is the end times and eschatology and looking at the end. And so we often go to Revelation, and, uh, and second to that, we go to the second part of Daniel that is not specifically why we're turning to Daniel, although we're going to look at Daniel's visions and look at the end times and talk about eschatology. And that's going to be exciting as we get in that uh, here in a few months. But these are not the reasons that we are turning to Daniel. We are not turning to Daniel for a diet or for a hero story or even for the end times. We are turning to Daniel for the same reason that we turn to all of God's word. And we turn to it for the reason that it was given to us to behold the glory of God and to look at the hope of the Messiah who was to come, who we know is Jesus Christ. And so this is why we open the Bible. This is why we go to the book of Daniel is for the glory of God and the good of his people. So, a few things to address uh, before we get into our specific text this morning of the first uh, two verses there. Uh, one is this, is how, how Daniel was written. So we want to look at, at two thi- three things uh, here in the beginning, the how, the why, and the whom. But how was Daniel written? Daniel is a little bit different. Most books of the Bible, not all books, uh, Genesis has a couple genres. But most books are written in one specific genre for that book. Uh, the, 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 the kind of the tone of how the book was written and helps you understand how to read it rightfully. But Daniel is written in two genres. The first six chapters, we keep talking about these two parts. The first part of Daniel is written in what we call historical narrative. And that's a fancy way is it tells a story from history, right? And so this historic narr- historical narrative in the first six chapters, uh, it is used, it is a form used to tell actual historical events. And so we're going to look and there are six specific stories uh, in these first six chapters. And we're familiar with Daniel and the lions. And we're familiar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so we've, we've heard these stories. And like all of, like every Sunday morning as we open God's Word, but especially when we go through God's Word that we're familiar with from, from early childhood, I always enjoy going through there with a gospel lens, even that I didn't have as a kid. And I didn't have maybe as a teenager, or even in my early 20s. And so I'm excited. To, to revisit some of these historical stories and actually see them for, for the, the truth that really is there. It's not to dare to be a Daniel, but it's to look to Christ ultimately. And so uh, we see that one genre is a historical narrative as we're going to see these stories. And, and we've, we've walked through some other historical narratives uh, here at North Hills in these other 10 books. But also, the second part of Daniel, starting in chapter 7, uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and chapter 12, the final chapter of Daniel, uh, this is what we call apocalyptic. Ooh, this is when it gets fancy, right? This is when we get to talk about the eschaton, eschatology, these fancy words, meaning the end times. And so as we turn to the last part of Daniel, we're going to look at this apocalyptic genre. 
We're going to look at how these visions that the Lord gave Daniel, and he gave Daniel for the people of Israel, uh, as we're going to talk about in a moment, of where they are in their life, but he also gave them to us. The Bible is not about us, but it is for us, for God's people for all time. And so we're going to see this treasure that we have as we look at the apocalyptic genre. Uh, and really, it, 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 with the exception of uh, kind of sticking our toe into a couple places in these past 10 years, as a church, we've never gone through the apocalyptic genre. So we are looking forward to that interesting journey to the second part of Daniel. So how was Daniel written? It was written as historical narrative, it was written as apocalyptic. Uh, the second question is, why was Daniel written? How was Daniel written and why was Daniel written? Uh, although we see that it's split into two uh, different sections, written to two, in two different genres, there is one overarching message to the book of Daniel. One overarching message, and surprise, it's not a new overarching message. It is one that we encounter in every book that we turn to in Scripture. It is the sovereignty of God. Specifically in the book of Daniel, we see the sovereignty of God over human affairs, over His people, and even over the nations. And so it is the sovereignty of God that we will see on display uh, again and again in Daniel. Whether it's the historical narrative aspect, and we see stories of Daniel and his, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or whether it's even the visions that Daniel has that have, have yet to come about. It is God being sovereign over every aspect of Daniel's life and over Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's life, over Israel's life even over Nebuchadnezzar's life and Babylon's life, every aspect, God is sovereign and He is in control. And so we will look at this sovereignty of God. And it is, that is a message that we need to be reminded of, the sovereignty of God. We talk about it often, and we're not going to stop talking about the sovereignty of God. And we often quote Spurgeon, and I'll quote him again this morning, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. I was talking to someone even this weekend, and uh, our conversation turned theological quickly, and I was very grateful for that. Uh, but the person did not necessarily hold the same view of sovereignty, not that I have, but that the Word of God has. And, and the person clearly said that God was reactive to, to His people. And God is not reactive. God is not waiting on me to do something. He was not waiting to see what Daniel would do and what Nebuchadnezzar would do. He was not waiting to see, to see any of the events of history unfold and react. God is sovereign and he sits in the heavens and he does as he pleases. And it should bring great comfort and great peace to us that nothing surprises God and that God is able to do all that he wills and that all that he wills, he brings about. Is there anything more comforting than that, that a God who is holy, a God who loves us and cares for us, a God who has been, been bringing the scarlet thread of the gospel since Genesis chapter 1, that he is able to carry out all that he promises. And we'll see that unfold in the book of Daniel. And specifically, in, very, in three very specific places, we'll see that God is actively involved in the events of history. So, what, how was Daniel written? Why was it written? And thirdly, uh, to whom was Daniel written? To whom was this book written? 
knowing the uh, intended original audience of any book of the Bible is something that always helps us as we walk through the book of Jude to know that it was to, uh, to the church uh, as we walk through the book of Hebrews uh, to know that it was to the Hellenistic Jews and we walk through that and what that meant. It helps us to understand the original purpose, the original intent of Scripture, of the Holy Spirit inspiring the author. We know that it helps us. And so who, uh, to whom was Daniel written? Most specifically, Daniel was written to the, we'll use a fancy word, the exilics, uh, to the exiles, to the Jewish people who were in exile. We're going to talk about the exile a little this morning, but we're going to continue to talk about it, not just in the next few weeks, but throughout, especially this historic narrative aspect of Daniel. But the exiles, the exile uh, of, of Jerusalem to Babylon was one of the most key uh, historic events in the nation of Israel. Um, they were taken from their home and they were uh, uh, brought to somewhere that was not their home. And we'll unpack that beginning this morning. Because they were taken from their home, they were taken away from their temple, they were forced to live amongst Gentiles and forced to, at least try, attempted to be forced to worship false gods. And it is here that Daniel begins this morning uh, with the, the, the first wave of the exile. There are three waves of the exile uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this is the first wave uh, that we will get to this morning. And so it's written to Jewish people who were in a place not their own. And if that doesn't sound familiar, it should be very familiar because we live the same life. We are people that this is not our home. He said, well, John, I've been in West Monroe, Louisiana my entire life. This is my home. I bleed West Monroe. West Monroe is not your home. Monroe, Downsville, wherever you come from is not your home. Your home is not a place that a mailbox sits. Your home, if you're a believer, is in the heavenlies. Your home is in the presence of God. Your home is to be with the Lord fully and forever. And so we, this is not our home. We are, as Scripture says, as we walk through in Hebrews, we are aliens. We are strangers in a foreign land. And so as we read through Daniel, as we, as we understand how this is written to a group of exiles, it should be great encouragement to us. That even as, as believers, as people who are physically present somewhere, that we are spiritually present somewhere else. That this is not our home. And how, so then how do we live in a time and in a place that we truly don't belong? And so I'm excited to see what that looks like for us as believers uh, to know that we are aliens and strangers in a foreign land just as these Hebrews were. So how was Daniel written? Why was he written? And finally, to whom was it written? So with these things in mind, let us go to the book of Daniel. As we said this morning, we'll be in the first couple of verses. And so let's go to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. Hopefully with that long introduction, you have found time to find the book of Daniel right after Ezekiel. So, Daniel 1.1 says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So 
There we go. These two verses. We hadn't got to Daniel yet. We hadn't got to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We are, we are setting up the book here. So the first question is, especially as we go through the Old Testament, because it gets a little difficult when you read through the Old Testament, where are we on the timeline? If you can visually imagine a timeline and you, you know certain events, you know certain books, where are we on this timeline? And so let's, let's kind of put us in the right spot so we can kind of know where we are. And so one, one thing that's helpful, if not the main thing that's helpful as you read through Scripture to know where you are, is to see who is ruling, who is, who is uh, ruling in Israel at the time or even in the watching world. But it says there in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So there we go. It puts us a little timeline there. It helps us know who's ruling. It says it's during the time of Jehoiakim. But now your next question is what? Who's Jehoiakim? When and where is he from? And I'm glad you asked. So go with me to the book of 2 Chronicles. You're like, man, I never go to Chronicles. If you're reading through the Bible, you'll get there maybe in a couple months and going to fly through there like you do Leviticus. But uh, before you do, let's pick up some information. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's going to tell us who Jehoiakim is. Now, Many of you probably recognize the name Josiah. Josiah, uh, of all the kings of Israel, there is a short list of good kings who walked to the Lord and trusted the Lord and walked uh, in righteousness. Uh, Josiah was one of those kings. Also, he is made famous because he's the youngest king in Israel's history. He became king at eight years old. And so uh, in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 35, we kind of have this transition from Josiah. Uh, we won't go into to all of that, but Josiah... As king, uh, he's called out and he's uh, dealing with, the, with Necho, the king of Egypt. And then Josiah is killed. And so you go to uh, chapter 36, starting in verse 1. Uh, the people of the land took uh, Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. And Jehoahaz was 23 years old, and he began to reign, and he reigned for three months in Jerusalem. He had a long reign there, didn't he? So his dad was Josiah, reigned for a long time in Israel, walked to the Lord, was a great king. If you go to the end of chapter 35, you can see that Israel mourned uh, and even made a day of mourning moving forward for, uh, to remember Josiah and the good king that he was. And here comes his son Jehoahaz, he reigns for three months. And then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and over Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz and his brother and carried him to Egypt. So just stop there for a moment. You see what's going on. Josiah was king. He was killed. His son was made king. Lasted three months. The king of Egypt comes in, takes him out of leadership, brings his brother in, and then changes his name. So you can see this is not starting out well, right? When Egypt sets the king of Israel, things are not going as they should. So Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He outlasted his brother by a long time. And he did, and this is important, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Not like his father. Not like other kings in Israel who walked with the Lord. He did what was evil in the sight of God. 
And against him came up Nebuchadnezzar that we see in Daniel chapter 1, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. So now we're kind of transitioning from Chronicles to Daniel here. Nebuchadnezzar also carried what we see in Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon and now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him behold they are written in the book of king book of the kings of Israel and Judah and Jehoiakim his son reigned in his place you know it's not good when it said all of his bad deeds are recorded in its own book you can go there for reference so Jehoiakim clearly was not a good king he was not a righteous king he was not one that was leading israel to follow the lord and trust the lord he was an evil king who was set up by an evil nation egypt so this is where we find ourselves in daniel so three years into his reign um we see that Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he comes to Jerusalem where Jehoiakim is, is, is ruling and he sacks the city. He takes the city. Now, I said there's three waves and it gets worse and worse for Jerusalem. But in this first wave, he, he besieges the city and he, begin, he takes out the first wave of people. He brings, and we'll see in these next few weeks, he brings the best of the best. He brings the best young men and young women that Jerusalem had. He brought all of the treasures, brought all the good things. He took all of the good things out of Jerusalem to bring to Babylon all the things that were to be committed to the Lord, both things and people. So who is this Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar, he reigned as, as the king of Babylon from 605 to 562 B.C. So he, he reigned for a while. We see Nebuchadnezzar all through Scripture, specifically over 90 times as Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar mentioned the Old and New Testament. He only lived in the Old Testament, but he's mentioned all throughout the Bible. But we learn the most about Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Outside of Daniel, he's the main, uh, the main individual that we see uh, in the book of Daniel. And he's not working, as we'll see, on his own accord. He is actually being used by the Lord. So he's mentioned over nine times in Scripture. We learn the most uh, in the book of Daniel. Both world history and the biblical, biblical account agree about one thing when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar. He was a wretched and ruthless king. As he led Babylon, he was ruthless and he was bent on destroying Israel. And so this is the Nebuchadnezzar that we see in Scripture. But when you, when you read uh, verse 1 and verse 2, something should strike you. Let's read it again because there's, there's two main things happening here. In the, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. What you have there in one concise verse is historical. It is history. It is just fact, right? Just that this is what at this date, at this time, this person did this thing. It is a, it is a statement of fact. It is something that you can even read in a history book in school. It is says when something happened, who did it, and what they did. But verse 2 goes from historical to theological. It goes from explaining what happened to why it happened, to who was really behind it. It says in verse 2, and the, I told you earlier there are three specific moments in the book of Daniel that gives God the clear credit that he's not just reactive, but he's actually causing things to be, and he is, he's actually moving things to work towards his glory and the good of his people. So in verse 2 is the first of these three occurrences. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now, 
Again, we don't have all the time to unpack all that means, but to think about that, God, God Almighty, the God of Israel, He gave the, uh, the King of Israel, He gave Him up to Nebuchadnezzar, this world tyrant who is bent on destroying Israel. God said, here you go, Neb. Here's Here's Jethro, for lack of better words. Here's your king. Here's your kingdom. Now go and do all that you want to. All that is in your evil heart, do it to Israel, my nation. Now that, that's a big deal, right? That should be kind of unsettling to us. But as believers on this side of the cross, on this side of having God's word, that we can see the heart of God, we should trust that. And maybe, and hopefully, the remnant of Israel was there in the midst of this, trusting that. God, we don't know why Jerusalem has been sacked. We don't know why everyone's been exiled and hauled out of here from Jerusalem to Babylon. We don't know why you let Nebuchadnezzar come in and take Jehoiakim. But, but, but we, we trust you. It wasn't easy in the midst of that. They didn't do so with, with great rejoicing and singing. But the remnant of God, even in the midst of that, They trust the Lord. How do we know? Because that's what defines the remnant. The remnant of Israel that we talk about often are those who continue to look to God as provider and as Savior. And so here is God. He is actively at work to bring judgment to Israel. To bring judgment to Israel. And we'll see in just a moment of why He's bringing judgment to Israel. So the historical part, we see that it happens. The theological part, we see why it's happening. We see why it's being brought about. The Lord did it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And not just Jehoiakim. He could have just given him right here. Jehoiakim, here, take Nebuchadnezzar, take him, go kill him, kill his family, and then I'll raise up another king for Jerusalem. But that's not what he did. It says, with some of the vessels of the house of, the, of, the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So God gave Jehoiakim, God gave the treasury, he gave these vessels that were meant for, for holy things to the enemy. And he gave, as we'll see in the next few weeks, he gave the people of Jerusalem over to the enemy. And so, why would God give up the king of Judah. Why would God give up Jerusalem? Again, I'm so glad you asked. Leviticus. Go with me to Leviticus. There's probably a few highlights underlined in the book of Leviticus. But there should be, because guess what? Leviticus is the word of the Lord, and it has got some rich and beautiful stuff in there. Leviticus. Chapter 26, verse 27 through 33. Leviticus 26, 27 through 33. God is is talking to Israel. He's giving them the lay of the land, if you will. He is telling them about um, blessings for obedience and punishment for disobedience. He is telling them what will happen if they follow him and what will happen if they cease to follow him. In verse 27 of Leviticus 26, But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. 
You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. If you could hear God say that to you, would it get your attention? And you say, how could Israel not follow the Lord with such a direct warning? And he continues in verse 31, And I will lay your cities waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your, your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you amongst the nations, or I will exile you, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a land of desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Now, as you continue the, the story of exile of Jerusalem in those three phases, you see at the end that he completely destroys. He tears down all the things of Israel because he is bring, God is bringing his wrath against Israel for them turning away from the true holy God. Go with me to 2 Kings. A lot of what you see in Chronicles, you'll see in 2 Kings. As you study the story of some of these kings, they're in the book of Kings, first and second. But second Kings chapter 20. Verse 16. Hezekiah, who was another at times good king. But in Second Kings 2016 says this. Then Isaiah, here's Isaiah the prophet, said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to where? To Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons, and not just your stuff, but here are people, some of your own sons, in his case his grandsons and great-grandsons, who shall be born to you, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And here's an interesting response to Hezekiah. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. If you just stop right there, it makes no sense, right? Oh, it's good, Isaiah. <laughs> Thank you. And you can just see a smile like, will you listen to Hezekiah? Did you hear what I just said? That God one day is going to take all of your treasury. He's going to take it to Babylon. He's going to take the fruit of your loins. And he's going to take them to Babylon, and they're going to be eunuchs. Oh, okay, that's good. No, that's not good. But here's what was on Hezekiah's heart. For he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? So he was willing to sacrifice the things of the Lord for peace and security, for peace and blessings. And this is not the way of the Lord. And so why would God do what he does in Daniel chapter 1? Why would God allow Jerusalem to be sacked? Why would he allow the king to be taken? Why would he allow people to be uh, brought and to turn into eunuchs and to be brought and to turn into the people of Babylon? Because he is bringing, he is pouring out his wrath towards his people. And he is using Nebuchadnezzar to do it. He is using Babylon to do it. As Daniel begins, the people of Israel find themselves in a dire and dismal place. They find themselves in a dark time. They find themselves not in their homeland. They find themselves not worshiping at their temple. They find themselves not hearing from the Lord. 
from the prophets of the Lord. They find themselves in exile. And as, as always, as you look at Israel, there are those who were not of the Lord, who did not have faith, and they, they encountered this, and they, they walked through this with fear, and with depression, and with brokenness, and with hopelessness. But there are those who continue to look to the Lord, that we'll see in the book of Daniel, who continue to look to Him. These are exiles, strangers in a foreign land. They are unwelcomed and unesteemed. They are amongst pagans and being told to bow down to worship false gods. Their way of life has been completely turned upside down. But yet God has not left His people. God is still sovereign. And God is still in absolute control. Israel's only hope is the same and only hope they've ever had in their history. And that is to look to the Lord God Almighty. That is to look to the hills from where their hope comes. It is to look to God and to the Messiah who will be their Savior. Will they look to God and trust in His provision? Will they remain faithful amongst the faithless? Will they trust in the sovereign plan and hand of God or will they turn away and the question is the same for us today will we stay faithful to God in the midst of uncertain times will we look to and trust the Lord as those who who were in exile as those who are not in their homeland will we stay faithful amongst the faithless will we trust in the sovereign plan and hand of God will we look to him for our provision. When we look to Christ as our great hope. Will Daniel's visions cause us unrest? Or will it remind us of the hope that we have in Christ? These are the questions that we're going to walk through and look to the, to the Word of God to answer in the coming months as we study through Daniel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for a chance to open your word to Daniel for the first week and many, many weeks to come. So Lord, would you guide our time? Would you speak to us each week through the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to exalt Christ each and every week? Would you help us, Lord, to, to feel like exiles, to feel unrest where we are today that we might continue to look to you so i thank you for this morning i thank you for chances to be reminded of of your sovereignty of your provision of your providence as we sing this morning lord may we do so unto you so we have a chance to respond and in, in giving lord may we give not just of our finances but we give of our hearts and our lives, and every aspect of our life, we realize that we are stewards of that which you've given to us. As we leave this place today, may we leave as those who have been changed by the gospel of Christ. Have your way in these next few moments as we respond to you by your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen.